Hello. Today we're going back to 2000 and one of the most dramatic election nights in US history. The choice for president was between Democrat Al Gore or Republican George Bush. Nobody knew which way it was going to go. Today, America is again forging its future by choosing the man to lead it into the 21st century. This is CNN's coverage of Election 2000. Now, from the election desk, here are Judy Woodruff, Bernard Shaw, Jeff Greenfield, and Bill Schneider. And welcome to viewers around the world watching on CNN International. Thank you for joining us as we begin what promises to be a remarkable and a suspenseful evening. As voting continues literally at this hour and will continue across the nation, there is every indication that George W. Bush and Al Gore are indeed locked in a presidential race that may be too close to call for hours. And for hours, television networks across America struggled to project the results as numerous battleground states were split by the tightest of margins. It is 7.30 p.m. on the East Coast, where the polls have closed in Ohio, North Carolina, and West Virginia. And to show you the extent of the ground war between these two gentlemen, we are not able to call Ohio yet in the presidential race for the White House. Too close to call in Ohio. Too close to call in the Tar Heel state of North Carolina, with its 14 electoral votes up. And too close to call in West Virginia, with its five electoral votes. But then something huge happened. At 8 p.m. Eastern time, Florida was projected for Al Gore. Victory there in the most crucial of battleground states meant 29 electoral college votes, and suddenly the Democratic candidate was growing confident of becoming president. Nominee Jeff Greenfield, this is something that is not making the Bush campaign happy tonight. This is a roadblock the size of a boulder to George W. Bush's path to the White House. As night turned to early morning, in the vote tally, Bush was taking the lead in Florida. And so by 1am, the networks admitted their mistake and moved the state back into the undecided column. Then, an hour and a half later, the result of Florida was once again projected. Oh, well, there's, there's no question that in a time of peace and prosperity like this, it's possible for Stop. the country to Stop. have Doris, such a division Doris, as Doris, they do. Doris, Doris, Doris. Uh-oh, something's happened. George Bush is the president-elect of the United States. He has won the state of Florida, according to our projections. 25 electoral votes. NBC News projects that George Bush, it's been a night of first giving it to Al Gore, then taking it away on the part of the networks. George Herbert, George Walker Bush, the new president of the United States, the governor of Texas, the first father-son governor combination uh, since the Adams family. This is the scene in Austin, Texas tonight. When the networks called Florida for Bush, he was leading Gore by more than 100,000 votes. But then, as more Democratic counties in the state announced their results, by 4.30am, Gore had narrowed Bush's margin to under 2,000. Gore, who had privately conceded the election to Bush, withdrew his concession. They thought it was all over. It isn't now. Look at this in Florida. Here we are, 99% of the vote in. Uh, we have projected it, obviously, for George W. Bush. Good grief. Look at that. 11. 11. That, that means automatic recount. Yeah, 11,000 votes. It's less than a half a point. This is the electoral map, as we said. The state of Florida, which originally we had put into the Gore column, and it was back to too close to call. Then it went into the Bush column. Now it is once again 
too close to call, and this is the corrected electoral vote total at this hour, 4.11 a.m., November the 8th, the year 2000. <laughs> Al Gore, 249. George W. Bush, 246. And CNN believes there will not be a winner determined in Florida until later today, Wednesday, when there will be an automatic recount. And well... I'll tell you one thing that's going to be recounted, and that is the way we count votes, because I have a hunch that there's going to be an enormous amount of scrutiny about a, about a system that calls a state for both candidates, and then at 3 o'clock in the morning winds up for neither. And that hunch was proven correct in so many different ways. As America awoke, a constitutional crisis was underway. No one knew who their next president was going to be. What followed over the next 36 days became a watershed moment in revealing fundamental flaws in the country's democratic system. The mistake made by declaring Florida for Al Gore highlighted the unusual role the US media play in declaring the victor of each state after calculating patterns from exit polls, precinct and county level votes. It was also revealed that the very tool voters used to have their say, the ballot paper, was now alleged to be failing them with the final tally in Florida showing Al Gore trailing Bush by just 1,784 votes. Democratic officials launched a court case arguing that the ballot had confused Gore supporters into voting for third-party candidate Buchanan. The US Supreme Court, however, on December the 12th, ordered the recount to stop. The result of the election had been decided in the courts. Florida had voted for Bush, who was now president with a lead of five electoral college votes, and yet 540,520 fewer votes nationally than Al Gore. Although the 2000 election had finally ended and retrospective studies show Bush would likely have increased his vote if a recount had taken place, those 36 days triggered a new political battle, with all agreeing the voting system was not fit for purpose. It underlined yet again the paradox that the president could win the electoral college, yet lose the popular vote. The fact that Secretary of State Catherine Harris was chief election officer in Florida, whilst also being co-chair of the Bush campaign, showed how elections aren't run independently. America's voting system was clearly open to electoral fraud and malpractice. In 2002, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act, which invested $4 billion in upgrading voting machines, training officials and combating electoral fraud. But it was a debate about a dog which laid the ground for a political row over voting fraud that still continues today. Permit me to discuss for a minute a few of our registered voters. Barnabas Miller of California, Parker Carroll of North Carolina... Packy Lamont of Washington, D.C., Coco Fernandez of Florida, Holly Briscoe of Maryland, Maria Princess Salas of Texas, and Ritzy Meckler of Missouri. They are a new breed of American voter. Barnabas and Coco are poodles. Parker is a Labrador. Maria Princess is a Chihuahua. Holly is a Jack Russell Terrier. And Ritzy is a Springer Spaniel. So has our voting system really gone to the dogs? And what can we do about it? This final bill takes the issue square on, and I'm very pleased that this final requirement retains and strengthens the anti-vote fraud provisions we spent so much time fighting to include. One, new voters who choose to register by mail must provide proof of identity at some point in the process, whether at initial registration, when they vote in person, or by mail. Among the kinds of acceptable forms of identification are utility bills, government checks, bank statements, or driver's licenses. No dog licenses, please. States will be required to maintain a statewide voter registration list. Mail-in registration cards will now require applicants specifically to affirm their American citizenship. The bill makes it a federal crime to conspire to commit vote fraud. 
Republican Senator Kit Bonnet, who went on to complain that Republican John Ashcroft had lost his Senate race because of voting by dead people and dogs. What was significant about the passing of the Voting Act was that it only set minimum standards and helped by a 2013 Supreme Court decision, this meant individual states could decide for themselves what kind of ID restrictions should be in place, the number of polling stations available and the number of days that early voting before Election Day could take place. Between 2010 and 2016, 21 states have passed laws that curtail ballot access, whilst 23 have expanded it. In almost all cases, those making it harder to vote were Republican-controlled states. Yet over recent years, there's been little evidence for electoral fraud actually taking place, whilst the impact of such measures have become significant. The Brennan Centre for Justice found only 31 credible instances of impersonation fraud between 2000 and 2014. Whilst the Washington Post has found that in elections where ID was required to vote, the Hispanic turnout decreased 7.1% compared to areas where ID wasn't required. The turnout gap between the number of white and black voters increased from 2.5% to 11.6%. And it's this two decades long fight over voter fraud that is the background for an almighty row that is gathering a pace ahead of this year's election. Mail-in balloting, you look mail-in. No fraud, no fraud, really? Why don't you take a look all over the country? There's cases all over the country. If we went to mail-in balloting, our election all over the world would look as a total joke. It would be a total joke. There's such fraud and abuse, and you know about harvesting, where they harvest the ballots and they go and grab them and they go to people's houses and they say, sign here. No, it doesn't work out. Now, an absentee ballot, you can't be there or you're sick, and you go and you register and you do all sorts of things to get that ballot, and there's good security measures. But where they send out, like in California, millions and millions of ballots to anybody that's breathing. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, it is expected that more voters will cast their ballot by post this year. Trump has alleged that mail-in ballots allow people to cheat. In April, Republicans in Wisconsin were backed by the courts in opposing Democratic plans to postpone in-person voting and to extend absentee ballots until June, as coronavirus cases increased in the state. Chatham House concluded that the decision forced voters into a trade-off between their health and the right to vote. As restrictions over early voting and mail-in ballots are debated, some Democrats are worried about the possible consequences. The majority of Democratic voters plan to vote by mail this November, while nearly 79% of Republicans still plan to vote in person. In addition, African Americans have traditionally preferred to vote in person, something that may be hampered by the pandemic, whilst minority groups frequently don't have the required ID to submit mail-in ballots. But even as we sit here, there are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the Postal Service in the run-up to an election that's going to be dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. Barack Obama speaking last week at the funeral of the civil rights leader John Lewis. Here's Democratic supporter Amelia Morell. For many states, mail-in voting is much more complicated. It takes a while to send it in. And um, there's a lot of states, especially um, red states and states in the South, where they don't have a lot of polling places. So especially in minority communities, they've um, 
like Republicans have changed it and gerrymandered these districts so badly to um, eliminate a lot of polling locations. So like 60,000 people will have to go to one polling location and the lines are really long. So I think that the turnout could unfortunately be affected just by the rules and by mail-in voting. And because of the pandemic, a lot of people may be staying home or they may never get their mail-in ballot. So a lot of things, there's a lot of things that could potentially affect turnout. I'm hoping that since our 2018 midterm elections, there a lot of young people turned out and more people voted than ever before. I'm hoping that that continues this year for the election mm. and that people will actually turn out. Do you think that there is a, an enthusiasm gap between Biden supporters and Trump supporters that may favour Republicans when it comes to election day? So I do think that that's a problem. I mean, Trump has his base and his base will support him and die for him through and through. So I think that they'll, they're going to vote for him and vote for him no matter what. I think that for Biden, he just doesn't have that same enthusiasm, which definitely could affect the election. The traditional routine of election night itself is also at threat, with mail-in and absentee ballots likely to be higher than in previous years, New York's congressional election in June was a warning for November. On election night, Republican Chris Jacobs had a lead of 40%, but this narrowed three weeks later to only 5% after more than 80,000 absentee ballots were counted. Rather than speaking of an election day, it may be time to talk of an election week, as votes of all kinds are counted. The damage to American democracy that could be done by both sides during such a week is startling especially if the night's result is then later undermined by the counting of absentee ballots amid widespread allegations of mail-in voting difficulties. With such possibilities, it is easy to begin panicking. Yet it is only August, and around the world are positive signs that elections can occur during a pandemic. In South Korea, for instance, they had their highest turnout in 28 years in April's election. For America, there has been great success and increasing the vote amongst US citizens who live overseas and whom are eligible to vote. This has been helped by the work of Democrats abroad. To learn more about this organisation and the role of international voting in US elections, I've been speaking to writer and historian William Barnard, who is now a UK voting representative of Democrats Abroad UK. Hi, it's Eric. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well, and you? Yeah, good, thank you. If you could, for us, please, just describe what is the role of Democrats abroad? Is it a campaigning vehicle for the Democrat Party back in the United States, or is it more about turning out the international vote when it comes to elections? Well, it's both of those, in Mm. a sense. Um, It began, really, in the 1960s, in the 64 election with Johnson, and in 68 uh, as as well. Um, There were a group of lawyers and others in London and in Paris who were very much interested, remained interested in politics of their homeland, uh, even though they were here, living here overseas. And so they began to work to try to ensure that people abroad had the right to vote. And they worked with the Republicans as well, uh, as well as other groups, to get eventually recognition that people who live abroad, Americans who live abroad, have the right to vote in the state in which they last live, and that legislation passed in the 1970s. At the same time, those among them who were Democrats, most of them were, uh, worked within the Democratic Party to get their group recognized within the party. And eventually, by the 80s, Democrats Abroad was recognized, in effect, as a a 51st state party. Uh, It was treated.
treated as such. We have members that sit on the Democratic National Committee. We send delegates to the Democratic National Convention to choose uh, the presidential nominee, just as every state does. Um, and there's anywhere from six to eight million. No one really knows because there's not a proper census done of those abroad Americans who live abroad. Um, and Democrats abroad has grown to now it's in almost 50 countries in, in an organized way and has members in over 100 countries, um, uh, but committees, organized committees in, in almost 50, uh, which which have the purpose of turning out uh, American voters uh, for we represent the Democratic Party abroad and we the official the officially by law we represent uh, the Democratic Party in a way that Republicans overseas do not they are not an integral legal part of the part of their party they don't send people to the Republican National Convention nor do they have members of the Republican National Committee so it is different in that sense we do a lot of voter registration and we are committed to doing voter registration on a nonpartisan basis uh, we often go into schools and businesses and without mentioning Democrats, we just sit, we're there as voter registrar and, and register anyone regardless of party. Uh, we have a voting tool online where you can request from any state uh, your ballot. So we are uh, primarily an organization that seeks to rally support among American citizens who live abroad for Democratic candidates, but we also serve that other purpose of nonpartisan registration as well. Would you say that it's a pretty fair and easy process if you're an American living abroad wanting to vote? Or is there particular difficulties that have arisen? It's pretty easy, actually. Mm. Uh, again, if you use the online tool, votefromabroad.org, uh, it will go to your, it'll tell you the address to which it has to be sent, sent on mail, the email request for ballots, and states are required to, to send you uh, your ballot in one form or another. Now, the regulations vary enormously from state to state. It used to be, for example, that in many instances you had to have your ballot notarized by someone. Well, that's that's not true today. I, know, I think maybe one state still has that, but almost no state does. Uh, over time, we've gradually been able to remove the impediments to voting from abroad. Um, and you are guaranteed by federal law uh, for, to have that right to vote the right to vote in the last state in which you lived in the United States, even if you didn't own property there, even if you don't remember the address in that state, even if you, um, you know, have no further connection, that you have the right to vote in that state in national elections and for president, vice president, Senate, and Congress. Uh, that's guaranteed. And it's also required that the states include those ballots. Some people abroad think those ballots are not counted, but the states require that when the states certify their final count the votes from abroad uh, have to be have to be included has um international turnout increased over the last decade for instance you know we have very little in the way of hard figures to prove that it's still true that uh, the turnout from overseas votes is not nearly as great as it is in in mm in-country votes. And the in-country votes in the states, that percentage is not particularly high compared with most advanced countries around the world. Um, but I have to believe that the number has increased fairly significantly because the membership in Democrats abroad has uh, tre trebled in the years after the Gore-Bush uh, uh, election uh, and the Iraq War, and it trebled again in during uh, 2008. 
uh, during the Clinton-Obama primary and then the Obama race, and then it's doubled in the last uh, couple of years uh, under Trump. So it has the numbers of members has have increased enormously, and I assume that that uh, implies that the number of votes cast for but it's still a long way to go before we even approach parity with the level of voting uh, in the state. So many people don't know that they, one of, one of our purposes is to let people know that they can vote and they have the right to vote and to show them how to do it, how to do it uh, with the least uh, difficulty possible. And that's what we're set up to do. According to the Federal Assistance Voting Programme, international turnout is around 6.9%. That's higher than in previous years, albeit noticeably lower than the 61.4% turnouts overall in the 2016 election. If turnout is increasing, then why? Is it down to increased awareness through the work of campaigns or increased accessibility to being able to vote? Electronic ballots are said to make someone 50% more likely to vote if they are living abroad. Another reason is that Americans living abroad are being energised by what they see happening in their country back home. I had been active throughout my adult life, uh, and even through my teenage life, um, in democratic politics in the States. I used to call myself a Democrat by persuasion, by inheritance. I passed out flyers for Adlai Stevenson in 1952 Mm -hmm. with my father. Uh, And in uh, 1960, at the age of 18, on the cusp of adulthood, I... um, I campaigned for John Kennedy in the Deep South in Alabama, and then became active in my state party. But when I came here in 1993, uh, I became inactive for a time until the 2000 election. And the 2000 election, which was decided by 567 votes in Florida and by a Supreme Court that was one-sided in in the decision that it rendered um, to give the presidency to George Bush, Rather than Al Gore, uh, George Bush who went on to came to uh, wage war in um, in Iraq. Um, that created a well of interest among people, Americans who were abroad, uh, and they swelled our ranks. And then again in t- in 2008, again in reaction to the Bush presidency. Although in retrospect, compared to Trump, that doesn't look all that bad. But in reaction to uh, the Bush presidency uh, and in People getting caught up in uh, the Clinton and uh, Obama uh, campaign, the primary campaign, uh, Clinton being the first woman to be seriously taken as a candidate uh, for a major party nomination, Obama the first black American to be a man of black of African heritage to be taken seriously as a presidential candidate. That in, increased the interest enormously abroad, and you had a huge turnout. And then when Obama won the primary and became the candidate, that too swelled. Uh, the level of interest. It was it was an incredible time. Uh, and then now, with Trump as well, uh, Bush and Trump have been two of our greater, greatest recruiters, along with Obama and Clinton. Do you think that there is a difference in the perspective or criteria between international voters and domestic voters, those living in America? For instance, I think Democrats abroad uh, voted for Sanders in the primary. Is there a different perspective between international and domestic voters? I, I think in general, the Democrats abroad as a whole uh, remain a, a bit more progressive than Democrats at home. Partly they've seen a, a, a larger portion of the world. They've seen that different things can work. They're accustomed to healthcare systems, for example, that are taken for granted, for example, in Great Britain, uh, and, and see some of the flaws in our own, as well as some of the strengths in, in our own systems. 
Um, so I think that there is a, a somewhat different perspective. There's also a greater concern than the average American voter would have with the role of the United States in foreign affairs and in the, on the world scene. And their own view of that, particularly under the Trump administration, uh, has been that uh, the U.S. seems to be in retreat. It seems to be withdrawing. It, um, it, it it's, it's heading towards a major kind of continuing confrontation with China, but having rejected the TPP, the, the trade pact that could have governed and set the rules for trade in the Pacific, uh, and having cut um, ties, or at least frayed ties, with many of our allies in Europe in particular, and withdrawal from the, uh, in the Environmental Convention, uh, the Paris Convention, uh, in so many ways, and, and questioning the role and efficacy of NATO and, and all the rest, that we have seen the way in which international institutions uh, and international norms have been undermined. Uh, and I think a lot of Americans abroad are much more attuned to that, understandably so, uh, than their counterparts at home. And that is a, a major factor in motivating many of them. Do you think that American democracy, with the work of Democrats abroad, but also because of domestic political factors, would you say it's stronger now than it was before? My natural default position is to be rather kindly disposed to people in political life, more so than most people, I suspect, because I know that it's a, it's a tough arena and that most of the people who are in it are in it for the good that they can do. Most of them have to accommodate at times to political forces that they are uncomfortable with. It's a tough life. It's a tough role, especially if you do it well and, and if you do it in a way that in the end serves the greater good. Uh, so I tend to have a, a rather more kindly disposition towards many in, in public life, including those on the other side of the political spectrum. But that has become more difficult in the Trump years. I never thought that I would use some of the terms that I have used privately to refer to my president president of the United States, the American president, in some of the terms that come to mind when you think of Donald Trump. There are actions that have been taken that disrupt the norms of political discourse, that coarsen political discourse, that undercut the understandings that we have about the limits of power and what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, and that undermine some of the fundamental principles of the rule of law. And that's of concern, I think, to me and to a good number of other Americans abroad. Uh, it's something that I never thought I would feel. As, as much as I felt negatively towards Richard Nixon uh, or towards uh, George Bush, at least in foreign policy, uh, it, it never reached the level of concern that it does with Trump and the Trump presidency. Uh, so I'm... Mm -hmm a bit more anxious than I would like to be. Just quickly, how confident are you of a Joe Biden victory in November? I have long since learned never to take anything for granted. <laughs> and I think I think you know, we have almost 100 days left uh, and a good number of things uh, could happen. Uh, mm. But nonetheless, I think right now it looks very, very good uh, for Joe Biden. Not only the overall national polls, uh, but the polls in the swing states as well. 
the margins are rather impressive, certainly, even though we're still three months away. But as we get closer, as we get past the Labor Day in September, early September, that first week in September, uh, I think you're going to see that if these tunes continue, that it's very, very, looking very, very good for the Democrats. And, and I must say, not only at the presidential level, and not only at the House, that we retain the House, but suddenly within reach is the Senate itself, uh, which everyone thought, in fact, that, it would, that we would have no chance of taking. But there's a good chance that we will end up in control of the, of the Senate as well. Okay, that was really interesting. Thank you very much. Sure. William Barnard of Democrats Abroad, and you can hear more from my interview with him next week as we, along with other guests, discuss the role of race and populism in American elections. We've heard today both the good sides and the bad to American democracy as it prepares for an election in unprecedented circumstances this November. It was Tocqueville who wrote of US election campaigns that it felt like the river of American democracy was set to burst its banks. But then, soon after, the river subsides, returns to its course and life continues. The legitimacy of the upcoming election rests on those involved to make the preparations required and to prepare the public for an election night that will be like no other, as millions of Americans cast their ballot away from the polling station and mail-in votes play an unprecedented role. Otherwise, that river becomes likely to burst its banks. Thanks very much for listening, and please remember to let us know what you think of this podcast. All feedback is much appreciated. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe. Also, make sure to check out some of our previous episodes. See you next time.